Welcome to EPR. On today's episode, we will be interviewing Mike Mayer, an NAEP board member, and we'll be discussing environmental policy with him. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Nick, you know that we are starting this podcast and it's for environmental professionals and as a community. So we're not only just people who work in these fields and are in our roles, but the greatness about NAEP and what they do and being environmental professionals is that we belong to a like-minded community. And so one of the things that we want to do on this show is to get you all involved and not just be the Nick and Laura show, but we want to bring in all of our other comrades and can give them some congratulations and kudos. So we're going to be doing shout outs at the start of every episode and really try to spread the love and give some congratulations recognize people for promotions, awards yeah. won. You know, there's a lot of, uh, NAEP has an environmental professionals award and we don't get enough applications for it. There's not enough awareness about it. So if you have an award and people are winning it, let us know and let us give some recognition for that. So we're going to have a form on the website. You can just go over to environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and go over to the shout out request form and sit, submit yours and stay tuned and listen to hear it played back on radio. Awesome. Thanks, Laura. And I love the idea of community. It's such a good, positive message. And I really do hope that you guys come on this journey with us and enjoy what we put out. And that's why we're doing this, because I think it'll be fun. So. With that, somebody hit the music. Nick, did you have a question for me about marketing or something? Yeah, Laura, like uh, something, and I shouldn't, I won't get in the habit of praising you too much because I I don't want that to go to your head, but... um, (laughs) <laughs> but I, I do have a, uh, you know, just doing this podcast with you. One thing I really noticed you've done a really good job of is networking, right? A lot of what the, you know, the guests we see on the show, how the show has come together, it's been really driven by a lot of what you've done on a networking front. And I, I think it'd be great to hear a little bit about maybe if you have any advice on networking and how you kind of set up yourself for success in multiple ways. Oh yeah. So yeah. Personal marketing, like networking. Okay. I've, kind of refer to myself as a networking queen. I right. just, I like, it's just, it's such a strange, I'm not a people person, but I can't help myself. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> curious about people. If I'm, right, right. you know, the things that people get into, like interesting, I learn from other people. So yeah. I find myself a walking contradiction in that <laughs> I like right. to be alone and pandemic's not really, I'm not one of those persons who's like, I need people. I'm trying to get yeah. But it's also because right. I kind of just do. <laughs> I do right. a lot of networking. I'm involved in a lot of stuff. I have a hard time saying no to things and getting involved and stuff. So, right. But I mean, as you've seen through some of our discussion, opportunities just kind of come at me a lot of times through yeah. networking because yeah. I've got connections to people and we work together on things. I mean, really, that's how I got started with NAP was yeah. through some projects I had done through work. And when I went to get on the board of the TBAP. You know, they're like, do you want to be vice president? And right. I think I already had a clue to this, but that was really first like light bulb into like, hey, hello, yeah. networking. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Thing. 
a lot of people expect it to be something they get return on overnight. So when I'm career coaching and people will say, you know, I I sent out, you know, I asked them like, who have you connected with? Well, I've sent out some messages, but I haven't got any responses and I haven't heard back and just expect it to be, which I think a lot of people now with social media just expect everything to be instantaneous. But I actually find that the return on investment from networking usually is anywhere between 90 days and X number of years. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, it's kind of like marketing where people need to see you several times and you get in front of them many times and you get involved in lots of different things before they're like, oh, you're top of mind for somebody else, essentially. Yeah. When I moved to Syracuse from Tampa, I actually made it a point to like my strategy for getting Mm -hmm. plugged in here and finding out what's going on. Because again, photography, career coaching, business coaching, consulting, I'm kind of in all, and in all all you do. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. So, um, I was meeting, my goal was to meet with someone new cup of coffee every week. Wow. And it only took a few months before I was getting introduced to people I'd already met. Right. And I, my line of like who else I should meet was way longer than I could keep up with. So I had saturated the market in less than a year, just last month. I was nominated for an economic champion award here. Oh, wow. Hey. Like, I didn't win the award. There's other big companies and lots of other people doing things, but just to be <laughs> right, nominated right, as right. someone who's just moved here was like, that's... That's pretty cool. Yeah. Direct effect of networking. Yeah. I've gotten plugged in and started volunteering here and there and stuff. So anyone listening, I don't care where you're yeah. at in your career, just starting, or if you've been doing it a long time, right. you know, networking is so important for any time you transition. So if you're transitioning from school to a job or from job to retirement or job to job, it's just so important to have those connections and be able to not only just take advantage when you want to ask for something, because you don't want to ask for something the first day you meet someone, but (laughs) that relationship. (laughs) Yeah. And I've had people say too, like, they don't believe a network should be used that way, but yeah. I'm sorry. I think it's an honor when people come and ask me for something. So of if course, I go yeah. and ask somebody for something, unless it's inappropriate or it's too often, you know, if it's genuine, yeah. I'm not abusing that power and I'm not overdoing it. Right. That's what we're here for. We're here to help each other do stuff, especially yeah. that's what NAAP exists for and why I'm so like into this organization. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really, that's a really good point. And it's just, it's healthy. It brings people to you. If you're asking them for advice, you're saying, Hey, you're an expert. You're somebody I trust. Can you please help me out? Very few people are going to say no, because if they know you and they respect you, it's almost an organic thing. It's not a burden. It's just a request. And so, but you did mention one thing that I thought was really interesting. You mentioned, uh, basically what I'm hearing you say is you're an introvert, right? You're an introvert who's really good at marketing. And I think that's a really important point to make because a lot of times people will use that as a shield for not doing networking. Oh, well, I'm an introvert. I don't like people. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be something that you avoid for that reason. I think introvert doesn't mean you don't talk to people and doesn't mean you can't network. It just means at the end of the day, you want all of them to go away. And that's not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just yeah. how you are at the end of the day. And exactly. I, I really it's appreciate so that. So true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up too, because that is absolutely true. And my favorite sort of definition or explanation of introvert, extrovert is just that 
if you're an introvert, being around people sucks your energy. And if you're an extrovert, being around people gives you energy. Right. So definitely, if you're one of those people that goes to a party, you, like you can be an introvert and have fun at a party. Yeah. But yeah. when you're done with the party, you want to go home and crash. Yeah. You know, if right. you're an extrovert, you want to party till 4 a.m. and keep yeah, it Yeah, you're the last oh, person there. The yeah, party. yeah, yeah, so exactly. that's kind of even tell the difference. Um, I'm that person who wants to show up, have a great time, and then go home and come. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I think that you're exactly right. People will use that as an excuse. Well, I'm an introvert. And that's what I, one thing I have a problem with some personality type exercises because yeah. they will often give people yeah. not the power to take action, but actually give them excuses to take inaction. Right. And so people will say, well, I'm an introvert. So Myers-Briggs yeah. told me that it's okay <laughs> right. to not go out and network. Right. Like, no, no, no. That's not what it's no, telling no, you. No. It's telling no, it's you that not, you yeah. need to come up with other ways to get around that. And I do that. Right. I limit yeah. how many meetings I have a day. Other yeah. business consultants will have, or coaches will have call after call after call. And I'm like, right. oh dear. <laughs> yeah. By the time I got to that third call, I will be worthless to my yeah. client because I, and I, you just have to recognize that. Yeah. You understand your limitations and you work within them. And whenever you, like you can be really focused and really dedicated, but you know that you can only do that for a certain amount of time. It's uh, everybody's energy bucket is different. And really, I think even putting people in, to two buckets is, is, is kind of crazy, right? So you're either an introvert or an extrovert, right? Like, like nobody works on that way. It's definitely a spectrum. And there's even times where you'll want to be, you know, where I'm sure you would stay later to a party you were really having a good time in, even though you are an introvert. So there's days where you'll be a little more extroverted or a little more introverted. And so it's yep. understanding yourself and understanding how to, how to use your, your mentality and your, the way you work to your benefit. Yeah, and I think, you know, the main takeaway is just, like you said, figure yourself out and then find right. a way to do it. Yeah. Whether, you know, maybe it's more comfortable, maybe it's you need to change the setting or maybe you need to change right. who you're meeting with. Right. Those types of things can change the atmosphere and how your energy level feels and your, and your comfortability as well. Right. Is that a word? Comfortability? <laughs> um, yes, it is today. Today it's a word. Um, we'll make it. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well, we want to welcome Mike Mayer to the podcast. He's a senior environmental planning lead for HDR out of Minneapolis. And so, Mike, I know you've got 20 years of experience in uh, natural resources, uh, primarily in the energy sector. Is that correct? I would say energy and, and natural resource management. Yeah. And so, so what kind of drew you into that? Like, where did, where did, uh, where did you start? Sure. So I started, uh, so a long time ago, my grandfather had run a conservation camp back in New England, uh, outdoor education. And so really kind of got my upbringing through that kind of thought process and exposure kind of to the outdoors and wanted to go into wildlife fisheries biology for college. I did that. And now here I am as a senior environmental planning lead 20 years later. So what's what is a conservation camp? Like, is that like literally like taking you out into the woods and being like, uh, good luck or... You know, <laughs> no, I think those are survival camps. Oh, right, no, right, right. <laughs> a conservation camp is basically outdoor school. It's called different things in different places, but this was back, geez, I was a kid. So this is back in the seventies. Oh, that's awesome. He ran one and, and there's one in New England for a long time, still environmental schools. And uh, so I had exposure to that growing up. Oh, that's great. And yep. you mentioned, uh, so you went to school and you went, you had got your master's and you asked us to tell you about the, what's this about catching a deer for the first time, oh. the master's project? So, yeah. So I did my undergrad and grad work at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. 
And my thesis was on looking at the harvest model for white-tailed deer in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, we needed to capture some and radio tag them and then do some surveys to determine actually what kind of numbers we're dealing with. And the way that I went about capturing them was using what they call rocket nets. And so you're sending this big old net over right. a bunch of deer and going out. And I remember the first time we did that, um, I had a bunch of volunteers helping me. Right. Right. And I was the closest one. I was halfway out in the field and launched a little detonator, um, <laughs> shot the rockets over them, caught two, uh, a big doe and a, a yearling. And I remember right. I got out to the doe and got her on the ground and the first volunteer ran past me. Right. I was like, okay. And the second volunteer ran past me. <laughs> and at the right, fourth right. one ran past me. I was like, hey, can someone help me with this bigger one? Kind of kicking the kicking me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's great. Well, how did man. that end? Did you get the job done? Yeah, I finally had some help, and we yeah, uh, right. <laughs> we got her blindfolded and and hobbled and put a collar on her and let her go, and she was fine. Oh, so. Great. Yep. Did you still follow? Are you still a white-tailed deer enthusiast? Do you still follow like uh, that back home? Um, at times. So, so when I worked for the Park Service, I did a lot of white-tailed deer management plans for the National Park Service. Oh, right, right. And including some chronic wasting disease work. Yeah. And so I still kind of track that, especially here in Minnesota, the Midwest. Right. Yeah. It's uh, Chronic wasting is a really tough problem. I know we've had issues with that in Virginia, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I think is that that's one of those things where like was it it's a feed problem right people are putting out feed and then you have a disease vector coming all into one place were you seeing that when you work for the park service is that the issue of like you know people kind of making the disease a little worse or is it something different no it was when i was working with the park service we were dealing with really high densities of deer right and so trying to manage deer and then you know i think this was back in the early to mid 2000s maybe early 2000s there was a chronic wasting disease discovered in west virginia Right, um, and it was the first one there, and so the concern was that it would work through the the native herd. Yeah. A lot of the problems uh, that they believe is it comes from more of a, a captured herd and captive uh, bred deer transferring it to to wild deer. Yeah. But it, you know, it's one of those diseases. It's related to mad cow. It's related to right. a couple others, or to kind of jump species lines. Um, right. Mm. Yeah, which I know is uh, it's, it's a tough problem. To, to solve. But you actually also kind of touched on another thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so you have a background working on the federal side of regulations and on the, you know, the consulting side. So I don't know, maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences you see in in, in the industry and move some pointers for those. Sure. Yeah, I had the opportunity to work for both agencies within the Department of, of Energy as well as Department of Interior. And so really get to understand how those agencies work and kind of how agencies work generally. And then I had an opportunity in consulting to work with more agencies and see how it all kind of fits together, which has been really helpful. And so for me, it's it's kind of been trying to figure out, and especially with politics and changes in regulations and executive right. orders and all those kinds of things, right. trying to really navigate where we're headed so that we can provide, you know, advice to our clients, sometimes our clients or agencies, and, you know, <laughs> on where we think things are going. So it's definitely been, it's been helpful having that inside perspective, being an agency employee for a number right. of years, and then coming at it from the outside as well. Do you see that that's an advantage, you know, having background in both federal and consulting? I do find it as an advantage. It's really helpful. A lot of times you can talk with the agency client a little bit more uh, candidly about right. some of the stuff that they're dealing with because the stuff you dealt with as an agency employee as well 
you know, and oftentimes civil servants uh, don't get a lot of respect. Uh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, you can totally relate to that. It's, it's similar to with my background in law and biology. I can, I usually can talk to biologists pretty well and I can talk to lawyers pretty well when sometimes lawyers and biologists don't talk very well to each other. So um, it's kind of (laughs) being able to speak those languages helps a little bit. Right. Yeah. It's it's the uh, nature of a consultant, I think, right? You have to be able to put on a lot of different hats. Yep. Yeah. And so you talk about the, you know, regulations and differences between agencies. And, you know, we've talked candidly before about the the final rule for CEQ as well. And so do you feel like there's some some advantages to kind of helping uh, across the board for agencies uh, in those regulations? Yeah, I think so. In terms of understanding what the overall intent is, I guess, of implementing the new regulations, I think that each agency and department is going to come up with their own guidance on how to implement them. And so I'm talking with the client just the other day about the new regs, and he's waiting for agency guidance on how to implement them. So then, you know, having worked under the old regs and and now looking at how the new regs are changing things, some of the things and being able to look at the lot of case law that helped define where we are with NEPA specifically, I think it definitely helps to provide some suggestions, I guess, for things for them to ask and just kind of probe a little bit more. It's like, is this really what we're doing? Is this the best approach? Is this how we want to proceed kind of thing? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really a good point, too. And it's another one, uh, something I wanted to ask you. you you've also taught a lot of courses uh, with, on sustainability, environmental law in general. And so we're talking about very complicated things that we're trying to put in bite-sized form. And so can you maybe discuss the challenges of, of trying to teach that? And Because that applies, I think, also when you're managing a project. It's the same skill. So Sure. Yeah, well, so... It's really it's funny. So sustainability, much like adaptive management, is defined 16,000 different ways, depending on who's making the definition. And so it can be really challenging to try to agree on one definition of how how to, a term should be implemented or how an approach should be implemented. It's sometimes I get on my little bandwagon about NEPA because... You know, I think NEPA is a sustainability law. It's one about balancing and harmonizing and and those kinds of things. And and when I was teaching those courses, you know, a lot of times sustainability, you talk about the triple bottom line of kind of balancing social, political, and environmental issues to find that sweet spot for a sustainable decision. Right. And NEPA is not very different in terms of looking at those same kind of considerations. So that's kind of how I've, in those kinds of terms, kind of tried to provide some, I guess, common approaches to those kind of big questions. Perfect. And so one of the fun things we like to do around here is, you know, to kind of, uh, now that we've done all of our, you know, very difficult policy talk, um, <laughs> you know, we like to ask some fun questions. So you mentioned that you actually write fiction. I do. As one of your hobbies. So, okay. All right. So I have cool. to know what, what, what kind, yeah. What kind of fiction do you write? Uh, where can we buy the Mike Mayer novel? Uh, uh, right now you can't buy anywhere. Okay. <laughs> No, so part of my little ways to escape the reality of the profession (laughs) is uh, writing fiction. And so I write thrillers. And I've been doing it since I was in law school. It was a way for me to kind of escape law school for a couple hours a weekend, go to a coffee shop and just write a story. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I've been doing that for a number of years. I have a couple. And I, I recently actually acquired an agent and looking forward to trying to find a publisher for that is so cool yeah yeah that's really incredible so So maybe my hobby will turn into something more (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, right. We are interviewing uh, uh, seasoned veteran Mike Mayer, uh, you know, fa- future famous famous artist. I can talk. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's really neat, actually. So, like, is that something you just picked up or is it something yeah, like, you've always thrillers wanted to do? Too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. For me, so it's always been, like, the ones I write are, have a little bit of an environmental bend to them in terms of right. what the issues are. So a lot of it's writing from what I know and thrillers are just fun because they're fast paced and you don't really have to do a ton of research right? Uh, for thrillers <laughs> right? right. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, once it becomes work, I'm not sure it'd be a fulfilling hobby anymore. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's some research you do, but you don't have to do map it all out. And the way that I write is, is kind of by the seat of my pants. So I'm not a big outliner, those kinds of right. things. So. Uh, it's just something that this uh, story in my head, I got to get it down on, in, on the keyboards. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, that's great. So, so you just, do you do, a, is, there's lots of different ways to write. And do you find that you need to kind of set aside like, okay, I'm going to spend 10 minutes writing about whatever comes into my brain and then another 10 minutes just expanding on that? Or do you have a different process? For me, I have a different process. Usually I have to go somewhere. Yeah. And COVID has made that very difficult and our house is full. And there's nowhere to really go here um, to get away. And so I find myself getting a cup of coffee and taking my car and driving to like a trailhead and sitting in the passenger seat and writing. Yeah. (laughs) Just as a way to get out and get my coffee and and write. And typically what I, the way I write is that it's just, it's, it's really like an ongoing story in my head that. And it takes different turns. And sometimes I'll go back when I am done with the first draft and I'll be like, well, that turn didn't work out very well, right. um, yeah, you been, know, and, yeah. and go back that way. But yeah, usually I don't do a, a ton of planning. I have some notes in terms of where I think the story's going, but right. if it goes somewhere completely different, that's fine too. Yeah. So, so do you, like when you go, when you go back and read it again, cause I, I, I have this problem, like, you know, I'll, I'll go back and I'll read it and I'll be like, I am an idiot. Why did I say that? Like, what, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so how do you kind of balance uh, needing to, you know, proofread with actually, you know, pushing the, the narrative forward? Yeah, that's a hard question, I guess, in terms of, of the process. You know, I definitely, I've also used a lot of beta readers, having people read, read it for me because, right. you know, with editing. So <laughs> the glamour is writing, right? right? Most of the work is editing. And yes. so, yes. you know, you, you spend time writing the novel and then you spend three times as much time editing the novel. And, you know, I pretty much have the first one memorized uh, because I've read it so many times and gone through it so many times. Um, So, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's really helpful to get that outside point of view too. What's really funny about the first one is I had no idea about marketing books. And so my first novel was 180,000 words. That seems like a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that. And I went to an agent and she's like, yeah, well, thrillers are about 90,000 words. I said, oh, so oh. I have to cut out every other word. Okay. <laughs> it would be a very unique read. I'm just It saying. would be. It would yeah, be. Right. <laughs> People would miss some things, I think. But uh, right, right, no, right. and so, you know, it really challenges you to, to whatever you write the first time, you have to be willing to cut Yeah. the second right. time. And you can't be so invested. Same with characters, right? You get invested in characters you develop, and then, yeah. you know, you decide you really should kill them. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. It's one of the hardest things in the world. And actually, it does apply to NEPA too, right? It's it's when you're writing, uh, taking something and then trying to write it with fewer words, right? It's just almost always, if you can say the same thing with fewer words, you're almost always better off. 
But when you when you care about something, it's so much harder. Oh yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, or you feel like it, you're not doing it justice. You're not explaining it enough. Right. Right. Exactly. Because it is important. Yeah, those are challenging. Yeah, but that's really great. So yeah, I don't know, Laura. I you didn't, I know you didn't jump in there, but if there's anything else you wanted to like, you know, ask him, now is the time. So. <laughs> I think yeah. it was fantastic. I, I I love I just love everybody has a different like hobby thing that they do. There's no yeah. no one has a nothing, you know? Like I'm an yeah. environmental scientist and that's all that I am. There's some other right. thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, being just what I do for work would depress me for uh, yeah. yeah. Got to have an out. <laughs> I know you, you absolutely do. That's 100% true. Yep. Which and, is uh, great. That would be a great lead in for that other. We were talking about having a conversation, inviting somebody on who does some work with environmental and climate change depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Cause, oh, oh, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, it is. Especially I mean, now, yeah. you're like, what does this all What's matter? <laughs> yeah. Oh. I was, yeah. I was joking with Laura. Like when I was a kid, like the, the there was optimism, right? Just right. Unbridled optimism. It was like Captain Planet was the thing. And you can you can save the planet, you know. Here's a you know a shirt, a t-shirt. Go save the world, and, and put a brick in your tank, and you're done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now it's it's quite the opposite. It's like okay, it's it's too late. You guys have yeah really messed up, and now we're all screwed. You know, it's, <laughs> I, it's really tough. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, and trying to you know explain to your kids, you're like, talk to grandma and grandpa. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I know. And, we were the skip generation. Sorry. We, yeah. we would have tried, but the boomers wouldn't give us any time of day. Right? Exactly. Yeah. They were too busy plopping us in front of the TV and saying, That's right. Right. talk to you later. Yeah. It's your microwave dinner. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I just want to say, um, I really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate the, uh, the, the energy. And, and yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, hey, thanks. It was uh, really great to see you guys and chat with you. And I'm excited about this podcast. So, cool. Yeah, looking forward to have you back and hear more about your writing and other. Yeah, maybe someday I'll be published. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. When you're published, uh, we'll do the first exclusive interview. You heard it, okay. here, folks. It's, he said yes. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> so yeah, thanks, thanks. Thank you, Mike. That's our show. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time.